Hello, welcome to Seen Anything Good Lately. I'm Jason Solomons and this is the podcast where the cultural professionals share their passion for what they're watching to leave you brimming with brilliant recommendations. I saw Minari. I did see that in the cinema. It's an American-Korean film with Stephen Yuan in. I think it's, a, it's an Oscar contender. That film, I have to say, changed the way I thought about a lot of things fundamentally about life and human beings on this planet. Viewing tips and tales this week come from director James Erskine, whose new documentary Billy, about Billy Holiday, played at the London Jazz Festival and is now streaming. And you also heard Sean Parks, the actor who just wowed everyone as the star of Steve McQueen's brilliant Mangrove, first film in the Small Axe series, currently playing on the BBC on Sunday night. What they're up to is fascinating, what they're watching is riveting, so we'll hear from Sean Parks and James Erskine just after I tell you if I've seen anything good lately. Can I just say, Masterchef The Professionals, that has got me addicted. I only used to watch the normal one, not the celeb one or the pro version, because I like stories of, you know, mums who cooked for years and suddenly got the glory, or there was some dull accountant who suddenly discovered their true calling at the stove and got the real flavour for life. I love those human stories. But this professional iteration I'm really enjoying. It's the first time I've really got into the professional lot and watching them perform their chef's tasks, you know, like fish filleting and chicken deboning and making classic sauces. Okay, to my mustard sauce. One shallot, gonna chop nice and fine. Shallots go into the pan. Garlic. We've got three mustards here. English mustard, French Dijon, and a grey mustard. They can use whichever one they like. For me, I'm gonna use the Dijon. I'm just gonna deglaze the pan with some brandy. Too much. Now add creme fraiche. Very nice. Very, very nice. I think it's pretty inspirational and it shows what a proper job and career and hard work being a chef is. Mainly it's probably because I haven't been out for a decent meal in bloody ages. But I also have exhausted my own cooking imagination. So they're just drumming up lovely stuff on MasterChef, the professionals. My money's on that guy, Dave, who runs a restaurant in Didcot all on his own. But I do like Victor. He's a bit of a star. And then there's young Andy, who seems to be very, very classy and classic. So I'm I'm pretty hooked on MasterChef, the professionals. I'm going to go all the way on that one. I do tell a lie about my own imagination in the kitchen though because I have been enlivened greatly by the arrival of Otto Lenghi's new book Flavour which has got some gorgeous things in it gorgeous photographs of those gorgeous things too trust his recipes get the ingredients in beforehand and have a go I did the aubergine dumplings a la parmigiana so light so tasty so good Enough gourmandise. Let's hear from my first guest today, James Erskine. I've known James for some years now, mainly as a maker of sports documentaries, such as One Night in Turin, about Gaza's tears and England's defeat and all of that, or films about uh, Tour de France cyclist Marco Pantani, or the ice skater John Curry, or a great Battle of the Sexes doc about Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs. James has actually just finished a new football doc, The End of the Storm, about Liverpool's protracted title win last season. But he's really back to talk to me uh, with a film about jazz icon Billie Holiday, a film simply called 
Billy tracing the life of the flamboyant, troubled singer and using tapes that James had come across of a New York journalist, Linda Lipnack Kewell, who was interviewing everyone who worked with and knew Billy in New York in the 1970s, fully 20 or so years after Billy herself had died. But that story was one of detective work and biography that itself had fatal consequences. So that has given James Erskine's film, Billy, another layer of tension and tragedy. So before finding out what James has been watching, I asked him what he learned about Billy Holiday himself as he built up his own portrait of her. Yeah, I mean, the more I think about Billy, the more impressed I am by her. You have to understand that she comes from such difficult circumstances. There's the obvious things of her being an Af- African-American in growing up in 1910s, 1920s, 1930s America. There's the less obvious thing, but it's a very important thing, is that she was a woman. You know, Me Too movement shows that women are barely equal today yet. Uh, and yet in her period, you know, I mean, this is a she's subjugated with that. But also even within those groups, she comes from the poorest of the poor, you know, in Baltimore. And she grows up singing in, in, in brothels, you know. I mean, she's not like Aretha Franklin. She doesn't get to sing in church with a protective environment around her. She has to learn from day one the value of her body and her voice. And I hope the film gives us is that she it shows her to be somebody who's a fighter and a survivor. You know, she raised herself up from such difficult circumstances through her talent. Was she a, a brilliant jazz singer? Did she work hard at her talent because she sings it like no one has before and certainly no one has since they've imitated her but no one really got the close no no one's really got close and i think she 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 says it herself in the film and she says she wanted to sing like a musical instrument when i listen to her she connects to me on an emotional level not an intellectual level i like you know many people grow up loving clever lyrics and the people like you know the bob dylans and that you know clever clever lyrics and and whilst there are clever lyrics in billy's songs actually how she communicates with you is is like an instrument she goes straight to your soul you know and i think she didn't have you know the greatest vocal range she she refined it through need so her voice was very responsive to the audience because the commercial transaction was very important and the other thing that struck me very early on was that, you know, everybody talked about Billy as being the greatest live performer of all time. You know, she was singing in cabarets. She was singing also big venues, Carnegie Hall, the Apollo. And, and everybody, but everybody that was her peer said, you know, but to see her was completely transformative from hearing her. And I think that's what, you know, we have the benefit of doing in film. And it's one of the things where I think Linda failed in her book. You know, one of the reasons she failed is she could never quite capture the brilliance of Billy by writing about somebody singing. And not only that, somebody that she couldn't, she wouldn't have had access to the same amount of footage that we that we did. And you get to see Billy, one of the greatest artists of all time, singing. So we knew it had to be based around film performances. So there's certain songs of Billy's, which are standards, which we didn't include because they don't exist on film. And that's a challenge. There's only one film recording of Strange Fruit that exists. And it happened to be recorded in London in March 1959, just before she died. And it's incredibly raw. And if you run that up against the 1939 Strange Fruit, which I think you played on your other radio show, uh, um, you know, the the Commodore recording is completely different. It's much softer than the pain. And when you see in her face, you can see the whole horror. It's like looking at a horror show, watching her sing Strange Fruit there. Not because she looks terrible, although she's not looking at her best, but because the the pain that you see seep seep through her face in her entire body. Was that a very famous event when she came to London in 1959? I sort of wasn't aware of Uh, those recordings. No, it was a a TV show called Chelsea at Nine. And she she did Porgy and she did Strange. I love you, Poggy. Take me, don't let. 
James Erskine, I am going to ask you, I know you've been making Billy and, and other documentaries besides, uh, but what have you been watching? Have you seen anything good lately? Uh, uh, I have. Unfortunately, my, my trips to the cinema have been somewhat limited. Well, you, uh, you're you not alone. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, um, I, I, well, I've seen some great television. Uh, uh, um, I mean, I'd say I'm watching Queen's Gambit at the moment, which I think is wonderful. Do you? Probably, Everyone's loving Queen's Gambit. Yeah. Probably my favourite thing that I saw in the last year or so on television, which is more like a film as unorthodox. Orthodox. I absolutely love I that. Thought I that thought that was terrific so, too. I thought that was kind of like what all those streamers should be aspiring to in that it was like a film. You know, everything about it was the pace and the photography and the storytelling of a film, but on a small screen. And I thought that was so wonderful about it. Technically, it was just like something I'd never seen before. Um, what else did I see? I saw Minari. I did see that in the cinema. Did Ma- you see Minari? Minari? The, uh, Minari. It's, a, it's an American Korean film with Stephen Yuan in. No, I not only missed it, I didn't even hear about it. I don't think it's out. It was at Sundance, I think, and and uh, it's due to be at Cannes. But it's I think it's a, it's an Oscar um, contender. But it's a beautiful film about a Korean family who relocate from Korean American family who relocate from Los Angeles, I think, to Tennessee. You know, to build a farm. It, it, it's very moving about the idea about immigrants and the idea of trying to find your own Garden of Eden in America. It's got some beautiful performances, and very funny and right. So I really rec- I recommend that. Great shout, James. I've, yeah. That's that's me. I'm going to be searching for that because I, I, the Queen's Gambit. I've seen three episodes as we speak, and uh, I nearly gave up at two. I was like, everyone's going on about this. I can't. I haven't quite got with it. Episode three is better than episode two, but yeah, I mean, it, it, I mean three. I said to my wife, I said, if this, if the episode three isn't any good, that's me out, you know. Uh, and actually, no, she, but, it was it was good enough. I'm gonna I'm gonna carry on. Yeah, but unorthodox is. I thought that was terrific as well. My brother said, oh. Well, the scenes in Berlin with the kind of happy, clappy kind of, you know, students all being all like this is, are a bit sort of silly. And I said, well, I actually really like those as the contrast to what went on before. You no, know that, that reminded me of loads of people at college that were like really annoying that we used to call the happy gang. <laughs> well, there you go. Not, not that and you burst out. Happy and, uh, and we were like, you know, they weren't, they were, they were, they were not the most edgy. Not that you that. burst out of a strict orthodox upbringing. But... <laughs> oh, you know, I grew up in Manchester and, uh, you know, very it, religious just christian family so right know, so was... you, you did know how it felt in that case um so that monari is a great recommendation what about a film that um that you the, do you remember the first film you ever saw james i don't remember the, yeah the first film i ever saw was star wars actually in the cinema when i was uh, uh i was uh, four years old i think you know and i saw it in in gatley in, in stockport i'm trying to remember the name of the, the theater cinema which is closed down sadly but uh yeah, I went. I went there, and it's funny because my first documentary I made for television was actually about George Lucas. So uh, um, there was a sort of, and actually, I ended up working for a while at Skywalker Ranch. So it completely impacted you. Did you love it straight away, Star Wars? Yeah, I think most uh, young boys uh, love it. Yeah, I didn't love it. I I was much more of a Bond. I saw them very close to each other, Star Wars and The Spy Who Loved Me, and I much preferred The Spy Who Loved Me. I thought that was sexier and cooler, and I've always been a Bond fan and more than a Star Wars fan. There you go. You're sexy and cool. <laughs> and erotic and exotic. And a killer, frankly. That's because you're, you're a fancy Londoner. You? <laughs> you're probably right. In the suburbs, you know. A lot of people. To... i got to tell you, a lot of all my friends all had the Star Wars. Did you have the Star Wars mem- memorabilia and stuff? Did you have like... No, no, no. no I wasn't a big, I wasn't a big, a big, a big nut for it. But yeah. What's the film that changed your life, James? I would say the film that made me really love cinema uh, um, as an art form really made me really consider it as an art form. Uh, I think it was probably the, the Kislovsky Three Colours trilogy. 
red, white, and blue. Yeah. I think they, they they were very significant to me to really understanding the art of cinema. Another French film really impacted on me when I was first at college, which was Betty Blue, you know, which just felt to me it carried raw emotion in a film in a way that, you know, I probably hadn't seen any films that were in a foreign language before then. And I was like, wow. Whoa. Look well, how... so there's, a, there's, a, there's a kind of artsy choices. There's a, they do change your mind because they change what you perceive as a reality. They change. You didn't know you could make films like that. You didn't perhaps know that films came in different foreign, you know, packages. You didn't know that women could be so like that because, in fact, all of those, all four of those films have very strong women characters out there who completely mm. challenge sexuality and sorts of sexualities and notions of aesthetic beauty as well. To us, kind of suburban British boys, I think they are, you know, impossibly exotic and emotional and like we don't we didn't know girls who behave like that well i didn't you yeah, might have. Yeah, <laughs> yeah 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 no 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 so th- th- those are just yeah wonderful films that sort of stick out as well as you know the classics like apocalypse now and those kind of things but i i, I think you know as i, I love those american things they, they didn't sort of break down in my head what oh no they change they change your life it does mean that then you you're obviously you, you start fancying different people and you, you look at the world a different way i think those three colors completely do that as well i mean those are so emotional and the music so amazing in them as well the uh, uh prisoner yeah. music uh to go with the, yeah, I mean, the, the best the, the, the film that stands out to me from the last couple of years you know which is which is an american film was was whiplash actually you yeah know? i just thought in terms of the art of cinema and just like the intensity and just something that just feels like god i wish i could do that do you know what i mean it has that sort of feeling of just like ah oh, just wants to rip, rip your soul apart you know in a different way and i was i you know that yeah. just is, is definitely one of my very good choice damien chazelle's uh, feature debut uh whiplash again giving you a bit of a jazz bit of a jazz life there that's brought you to billy holiday that, that, that's true yeah i hadn't connected this thing if you if you if there's one film you wish you had made, obviously it'd be great if you'd made, you know, a massive hit and gone on to make La La Land and were an Oscar winner, of course, but all this awaits you, James, without doubt. But if there's one film uh, from from the recent past or the past that you wish you'd made, what would it be? That's a tough question. Uh, <laughs> uh, film that I wish I'd made. I could, I could tell you about one film that I really loved, which was which which was another film that sort of blew my mind quite early on. Was, did you ever see Tears of the Black Tiger? Oh my Thai. god, the Thai Western. Oh, I love that film. I just, uh, I don't wish I'd made it, but I just. <laughs> yeah, I don't think. Yeah, oh. I don't think anyone. You, it's so unique, isn't it? I don't think you, anyone else could have made it. Whoever made it, uh, yeah, uh, what an extraordinary piece of work that is. Yeah, I've never seen yeah. anything like it before or since. I have to say, I'm not sure it's even typical for the, the Thai Western genre. No, no, no. It's a kind of, it's a, it's a kind of crazy thing. But yeah, no, I, I it's hard for me to pin. So no, but you know, sometimes you, as a documentary maker, or I don't know, you made a, you made a film about if you if you sort of oh the Zidane portrait that say that Douglas uh, um, that Douglas has made uh, there, or the Zidane portrait, you know, you'd have loved to have been able to have seventeen cameras trained on Zidane. You know, you've made portraits of sports people before, uh, that that kind of thing, or uh, you know, or, or maybe you, you wish you'd made Battle of the Sexes, the movie with the big budget that they nicked your idea uh, for. Um, well, I, I think I'd have probably made a better job of Battle of the Sexes the movie if I'd made it. But that, there that's you the whole go. Different, that's what uh, I'm asking. Whole different catty story. <laughs> uh, 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 gosh, it's, it's it's such a it's a really hard question, Jason. I really I, well, you know, I don't come on here expecting the easy ride, James Erskine. This is this yeah, is well, the tough you know, stuff. 
have to think about think about what films. It's films that you've loved than films that you would have made. Absolutely, and it is. And you know, sometimes I ask actors, "Is there a film they would have liked to have been in?" And that's it's slightly easier. They sort of, "Oh my god, I'd love to have played Bernardo in West Side Story." You know, of course, it's never going to happen. They could happen in the remake. For directors, it is a bit harder because you're like, well. if there's a film I, I want to I, make, I'd I, make it. I used to have a dream of remaking Convoy, the Sam Peckinpah film. <laughs> yes. Which most people don't know was Sam Peckinpah, but uh, it was. It was really good. It just, it I think it's because of the song, the little rubber ducky song. I'm slightly obsessed about that. Anybody that can make a whole a whole film off the basis of a single song is uh, is extraordinary. I mean, it's a pretty cranky movie now. But yeah, um, gosh, it, it's, it's hard to say. I mean, documentary-wise, you know, I love Man on Wire. That was a brilliant sort yes. of... Of just sort of you of telling a film, I mean James Marsh's documentaries are brilliant anyway, you know, and I'd seen his early ones like Wisconsin Death Trip. Yeah, brilliant. Burger and the King, and you know, but his his that man Man on Wire was just that it was just a way of telling a story about nine eleven in such a clever way, you know, and the way it managed to bring together, and it had such a brilliant central character, you know, and and the and the genre borrowing, and you know the way it was able to meld dramatization, I thought was pretty. Is pretty, pretty extraordinary. I'd have loved to have a go at that story. Yes, uh, that. Do you know what? I was always going to use that as an example of of something that you know, because I see you you could have done that. Do you know what I mean? It was. It's in your. It's in your wheelhouse to do it. It sort of feels the right sort of story. It's it's a a film I absolutely love, uh, from the moment it started as well, and it it kind of brings it all together. And you know, to also also remade as a as a also rather badly remade as a as a real life story wasn't it with uh, Joseph Gordon I think it was uh, Zemeckis Robert Zemeckis did the uh, did the remake but uh, there yeah. you go great choices James thank you very much indeed uh you've just I just got time I think to ask you about you've uh, I think you've made the hardest film that you could ever possibly make about Liverpool's FC's title winning year in which they yeah. they completely wipe your team off the park the year before obviously you 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 trumped them the, the year before with a brilliant performance well, I, I, underrated I think, I think we'll say something about Imrick Laporte's injury maybe that that may explain why yeah no it was, just, it was it, I had made a series which was on Amazon called This Is Football and I made a film which I think is a very beautiful film and I recommend people to watch it if they've got Amazon which is called Redemption which is about how football was used to overcome the genocide in Rwanda. Um, and I made it about a year and a half, a year ago it came out. Oh, excuse and, me, James, I've not seen that. That's remiss of me. You, you should see it as a, as a, as a, as a football fan. Um, and, and actually what we did in that film was we found, the film opens in Kigali in the contemporary uh, modern day. And we're following Liverpool fans congregating in a bar, you know, Rwandese Liverpool fans, you know, total nutters. <laughs> and we focus in on, on three guys, you know, one of whom is a doctor, one of whom is a, street vendor and one of whom is a tour guide and we then start to tell the story of the genocide through these three uh uh, three three characters and you learn that they basically rebuilt their family through this fan club because their brother or their father or whatever has been murdered and football has been a unifying force there are other fan clubs and i'm sure they've been equally effective in rwanda but particularly liverpool and that song you'll never walk alone became a really sort of mesmeric thing and and it's a very it's a very moving film and you know when we made it um liverpool uh you know who weren't part of it uh, um just thought it was really incredible as well and so they had said is there something else that we can do and we talked to them for quite a while actually about about doing something before the pandemic happened but um about this season um but they were very nervous because they thought 
that they would lose. That something it would come in and rob them of the title. That would a Man City fans snooping around. Something, something. Yeah, well, you know, that's 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 probably good to be on the outside of it, you know, and to be able to explore. And Klopp, such an extraordinary character and such an extraordinary man. So that's a film where we tell it from the inside and we, we have Klopp talking and Sadio Mane and Firmino and Van Dyke and, and Alison, who's a great talker, actually, and Henderson. We also tell it from global fans' perspective. So we're following fans in Wuhan, who were the first into lockdown, who are Liverpool fans. We're seeing fans in Detroit, you know, and we sort of touch on the Black Lives Matter story there. We're seeing fans in Brazil who are Liverpool fans, not fans of any of their great clubs, New Zealand, all over the world. So we're trying to look at the community of fans through, through that. So it has a sort of, and it, 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 it meant a lot because it's about the redemptive power of football through a pandemic, you know, and what it means to how you chart your life. And... Yeah, so it, it, in a way, it couldn't have been about Manchester City. It was always going to be about this sort of knife edge of Liverpool clinching it. So you, you were probably all right with it as doing that from the yeah, filmmaking, about... the stories perspective. Oh, oh, yeah, it's about a 30-year wait. And obviously Man City haven't had to wait for 30 years. <laughs> no, they might have to again, though. You need to get your act together, it seems to me, pretty quickly. Well, this yeah, Liverpool, Liverpool look pretty good, you know. But it's important to see, you know, for me, it's about when you're doing a film like that, it's really about showing the love of sport. This film's called The End of the Storm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not bad. It was a long, long storm. Great people tried it. They blow Liverpool right out of the title picture. So many people dream about our success. We have to make the next step. Even though I wear the armband and so many other ladies throughout the dressing room. Step it up, you. I wanted to play for a club that lives and breathes for the fans. James, in the meantime, I'm going to watch Billy. I'm really looking forward to seeing it. It's uh, it's part of the London Jazz Festival. I know that it's on Barbican. I know it was going to come out in the cinemas, but so it's now going to streaming. Is it quick, quick, quicker than usual? Or? Yeah, cinemas in Wales and Scotland, and then it's available via services like Barbican Cinema on Demand and and Curzon Home Cinema and you know Virtual Cinema and and also. Uh, via Amazon and iTunes. So. Oh, brilliant. Well, I wish you the best of luck with it because it's, it's a beautiful portrait. Uh, good luck with the Liverpool one as well. You'll find that the football is, well, as you know, football is huge. You know, the audiences for football films is like so bigger than the audiences for jazz films. Uh, but Billy is beautifully done. Congratulations on that. And thanks for joining me. Thank you. And Billy is on the Barbican's new streaming platform as well as BFI Player, Curzon and all of that. And there's a brand new soundtrack album on vinyl that's really worth getting hold of that has got the gorgeous picture of Billie Holiday singing colorized uh, by that wonderful artist Marina who does such brilliant work bringing it to life Hush now Don't explain You're my joy I don't watch The Crown. Is that heretical of me? Treason. I've just never been interested in it. And the Charles and Diana stuff right now, well, that never works for me. I've seen 
several really rubbish films about Charles and Diana, even the one with Naomi Watts. I mean, it was just embarrassing. So I'm just not going to get into The Crown. I did love the Stephen Freer stuff, like The Queen. Uh, and I know this is Peter Morgan at work again as the scriptwriter, which is great for him. He's now like telly's giant, isn't he? But I can't see myself getting into The Crown. So that excitement is being denied me. I'm still not finished The Queen's Gambit, which tells you enough about how I feel about that one. We'll get there eventually, maybe. Uh, but I have started on Industry, the BBC Two drama about high-flying city wannabes. If I say it's The Apprentice meets This Life, but with even more unlikable people... You'll wonder why I've even gone to two episodes on this one. Partly it was the directing lineup, which I saw started with Lena Dunham, who was directing the first one, and then Tinja Krishnan, who was doing the second. So I thought, well, I'll have a go. Although you wouldn't really be able to tell that those two were directing the episode, frankly. How many of these have you had? Nine. Four in New York, four here, and a Skype. It's a marginal game about marginal gains. People listening to you, is that how you get your validation? As opposed to, uh... I play third fiddle to two figures in my life. Jesus Christ and Margaret Thatcher. And where do you stand on them? One's the reason we're all here, and the other's a carpenter. There's something really unpleasant about industry. There's an edge of desperation in the characters and in the making of it, the style of the show. It's a bit try-hard with all those shots of London looking really empty, as if these guys were the only guys in the world, which is maybe a point the show is trying to make, but I don't know if it's one worth making. And it's got a curated soundtrack that doesn't quite work for me, not in the way that it did for normal people or I May Destroy You, but the way it works more like in Pret-a-Manger or Eat, you know, there's just this kind of ambient stuff that someone's put together. Oh, yeah, modern kids, they like this sort of thing. But they're not modern kids, you know, they're kind of posh, kind of, you know, aspirational. So there's some sex and drugs and nudity. Ooh, risky. And that all feels like the reasons they made the show, rather than come up with anything to say or any real characters. Plus, I've no idea what they're on about half the time. <laughs> all that finance speak it doesn't feel like they know what they're on about either and that's the problem so industry for me is hard work at the moment it's got one more episode left in it for me and then i'm out so what i can only term as a must see is Small Axe. It's on your BBC One on Sunday nights for the next few weeks. Steve McQueen's series of films about the black British experience in the 60s and the 80s. And I think it's a major work as a whole. Each film that contributes to it is a minor masterpiece. I haven't seen them all yet, to be clear and to be fair, but, you know, I think it's getting there. But even just getting these films made and out there and accessible and on BBC One you know, mainstream, major channel where the whole nation's watching. I think that's the triumph. I loved Mangrove when I talked about it as the opening night film of the London Film Festival just a month or so ago. And it was wonderful to see it hit the nation's screens last Sunday, the way it sets up the world of the restaurant in Notting Hill and the climate of racism around it and the clarity with which it introduces its characters so that we know them and care about them before the riot and the ensuing trial. On Sunday the 9th of August in North Kensington, a demonstration took place against the police, which degenerated into totally inexcusable violence. There may be some who believe that they have been the victim of injustice. 
at the hands of the police. Others who, like parasites, feed on these beliefs and seek to turn them to their own advantage, deliberately creating hate and violence. It's masterful, tactfully, respectfully done, so a mainstream British audience can get the full impact without being, you know, assailed by it. I loved it. I loved the performance of my next guest in it. He is Sean Parks, an actor I've known for many years since his lovable debut in Human Traffic as a turntablist DJ. It's great to see him shine as Frank Critchlow now, owner of the titular Mangrove Restaurant, and it's great to catch up with him now and to bring him to you. Very nice to see you, very nice to see you centre screen and being fantastic as Frank Critchlow in Mangrove, mate. I think it's a brilliant performance, a brilliant part, a brilliant film, my film of the year, I'm going to say. And I just think, you know, I just think, I don't know if he felt like that being part of it. Did it feel something special when it was all coming together? Um, Yeah, I had an inkling. But we still had to do it. Yes. It's one of those rare films for me, because uh, as a critic, you get a sniff as well as soon as it starts. So like, everyone's heading in the same direction here. Everyone everyone knows exactly where this film is going. And I think you feel that about Steve's work. It has a purpose, a sense of moral and visual purpose about it. And it doesn't let up all the way. Absolutely. And that's the thing about arts. You know, that's the thing. It, it, what's beautiful about it is it's subjective. I mean, the, the, the point is it's there for everybody to look at. And we're all looking at the same thing. But we have a different point of view literally I mean it has the generational thing where my mum looks at it and sees one thing then you have others who look at it and just see racism you see others who look at it and see the celebratory thing you have others who look at it and and, and see London and isn't Frank Critchlow the guy you play you know yeah. he, he he's, he's a real person he's a real hero probably more heroic now that you've played him and immortalized him and put him on screen for everyone to see how does it feel to, to embody someone like that to play an important real life person this is a a normal everyday important black character the like of which we really really get to see in British film British cinema it's a story that hasn't been told and it's a nuance that hasn't been told or, or really received by any any audience in this era meaning there are so many nuances to to the way that it's been written that it's kind of hard to explain but how did it feel to play it was amazing because I know that there a lot of people will understand what was going on but also a lot of people will learn from a very real truthful story and as we said at the beginning you know I've noticed that when you put a real story on screen and people connect with it they're just with you and that's it there's no talking about it you know they're with you and that's that you've got them and they've got you. Give us an idea what it's like to to be directed by Steve. I've interviewed him many times. I've done things on stage with him, and he prepares with them like no other like no other director I've I've, I've interviewed before and worked with. He knows there's a show going on. What's he like to actually work for, work with? Well, what's intense and so brilliant about Steve is is that you realise there's no. It's all meat. <laughs> there's no trimmings. It is what it is. He's a real genius artist. And I know that's going to sound like, yeah, okay, sure, is, is he though? No, he is. He's a genius. I happen to have worked now, I believe, in Sean's tiny little world, in my <laughs> tiny little world, with two geniuses. Well, maybe three. And they're always the same. It's always the same. Those geniuses. They have a, a real understanding of what needs to be done of what needs to be said, more than anyone else around them, possibly. They understand things on levels that people around them don't. Mm. So people around them sometimes, like, don't know what's going on, 
until they've seen the thing. They watched the thing happening every single day, but they didn't know what was happening. And then they, when it's put together, they look at it and say, that's genius. Mm. How did you do that in front of our eyes? And we didn't even see that happening. Because he was seeing the bigger thing. Exactly. And that's, that's one of the avenues that leads to genius, I believe, what, one of the avenues. What was it like? It was amazing because he doesn't compromise. As I've said before, if the scene is about four, five, six policemen chucking a man in jail, and that man doesn't want to go into the cell, it better look like that. So that's what we did with every scene. <laughs> yeah. I'm always amazed because he came from the art world. You know, I thought yeah. he'd be great in the visuals. His films have got the most amazing performances in them. That's what you know, from Fassbender, uh, you know, all, all the way to, to Lupita, to, you know, to, to you guys in Mangrove. I'm, I'm always stunned at how, how good he is with the actors. And that's, you know, that comes through in this one. What an ensemble. You know, amazing. What a way to put things together. But again, you know, without wanting to bring it down, the long and the short of it is, is seemingly in the old days, uh, creatives had a lot of say and kind of ruled their project. But then maybe a few uh, bankrupted uh, the networks and, and whatever else that they were on. So then, um, you know, uh, the higher ups took over. And so then you shifted from like it being on this side of the scale where it was creative driven to maybe that kind of side of the scale where essentially it, it was anything but creative driven. See, what I find with this is that there was a perfect marriage of everybody knew what they were doing. The BBC absolutely allowed Steve McQueen to be Steve McQueen, backed him from the beginning for like, as far as I, I, I've been told, like 11 years. So Steve McQueen was given carte blanche to do what he knew had to be done. And we saw that happening when we were filming and kind of knew something was happening that was possibly special and different to, to anything that uh, yeah. we'd seen in this era in this country on BBC. So we went with it. Listen, do you remember the first film you ever saw? You know what, there are, there are two films that come to mind, black and white British films. Oh, sorry, no, one. one. The first one, don't ask me why. I think I know why, but I haven't seen it for many years, is Great Expectations. The, um, the Alec Guinness one, the... Um... The, Alec Guinness and Sir John the David Lean one, yeah. I don't even really know why I needed to watch that film every time that it was on, but I needed to watch that film. And you, you remember back in the day, black and white films were on. Yeah, they were on. I think it's once you see the beginning of that film, you, you can't stop watching. It's the most amazing beginning, you know, the, 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 the cinematography, Magwitch coming out behind there, wanting Whittles. I mean, it's just amazing. Lexmith, eh? Now look at here. Do you know what a pile is? Yes, sir. Do you know what Whittles is? Yes, sir. Food, sir. Then you get me a fire and you get me Whittles or I'll have your heart and liver out. If you'll kindly let me keep upright, sir, perhaps I shouldn't be sick and perhaps I could attend more. Now you bring that file and them Whittles to me in this churchyard tomorrow morning early. Yes, sir. And never dare to say a word of having seen such a person as me. No, sir. If you do, your heart and liver will be tore out and roasted and et. There's a young man hid with me, and in comparison with him, I'm an angel. And that young man has a secret way of getting at a boy and at his liver. Boy may lock his door, may be warm in bed, but that young man will softly creep his way to him and tear him yes. open. Say, heaven strike you dead if you don't. Heaven strike me dead if I don't. And the other film was It's a Wonderful Life. Ah. Nice. You're sweet. You have a sweet little, sweet little Christmas spot there. It's funny. I never saw it as a Christmas film. Yeah. 
<laughs> it's funny that you say that because my brain had to think, oh, right, it is a Christmas film. Yeah, yeah, you know what? It is, if for an Americans it is, it's a Christmas film. But I think exactly. we, you're we, And you're right. You know, the bell at the end and the angel and the, <laughs> and, the, and, the, and, the, and the, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, but for some reason I never saw it as, a, my brain doesn't think of it as, as a Christmas film. It thinks of certain things that happen have stayed with me forever. So great expectations. Uh, for some reason, because it was just, there was something so real about it. There was something so real about his love and, you, you, you know, for, what was her name? Uh, in uh, Oh, great actress, Stella. Oh, yeah. Giving me quizzes. And then her mother, and then her mother. Totally. Uh, you know, and, and, and her, you know, the, the wedding cake and the, the, the spider webs. And the, Miss you Havisham, know, and yeah. Miss Havisham, thank you. There was something about the psychology of everybody's story in that. And again, what a name, great expectations. I mean, I don't know. There was something that those films did for what me. What about going to the cinema? Did you go to the cinema as a kid? Do you remember Not going... much, no. Not not in the 70s, you know. we. I don't know if it was a money thing or, or what it was about going to the cinema in the 70s that our family didn't do. 70s London, mm. uh, but we didn't. Have you seen anything good lately? What are you watching at the moment, Sean? I go through fits and spurts. I, I do. I watch a, a bunch of things and then I stop. I was living in LA and a young lady I know over there who is Italian from from uh, Tuscany hadn't seen the series Gomorrah and so we've sat and watched Gomorrah because again there's something about it's so operatic yeah and so again real and now and obviously being a boy from London of a certain era we love a gangster movie yes definitely and so the idea of seeing what they're doing now was very interesting to me but that's actually a couple years old now there's so much good stuff I mean there really is this this Westworld and the leftovers, which was only three series, and again, that's a few years ago. No, people so. are loving the leftovers again. I, it's not something I know, but people are starting to recommend that to me. So I'm feeling that I must right. catch up with that. Those leftovers. Yeah. I mean, I, I did watch that uh, a few years ago, but um, again, these are the series that have left kind of indelible. Mr. Robot, and, you know, obviously the Mandalorian now, and uh, and obviously Watchmen. Right. Oh yeah. Well, yeah, I didn't have you for those sort of things, but yeah. Oh yeah, Watchmen was was amazing, and Mandalorian was great this summer. I, I loved watching those shows. But to be honest with you, uh, now I think about it, the ultimate, the boys, the boys, boys, the boys. I don't know that one. Where's that one? What's that one? It's a superhero, anti-superhero thing. Ah, Homelander. I know people have, are listening to this podcast yeah. going, yeah, no, Homelander, definitely. I know yeah, <laughs> Homelander. <laughs> what are you talking about that's the one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, as a character. Uh, and I think when you'll watch it, you'll you'll know what I'm talking about. But um, yeah, a lot of these hold special places. Great, my, great my... recommendation. Is there a film that changed your life, Sean Parks, that you could say? That I watched yeah. or that I was in? No, um, uh, both, if you like. Ah, well, it's, uh, it's, a, it's coming from left field. But uh, a friend of mine, an actor, Rupert Penry Jones, mm. many years ago, um, we sat down in his house and he said, have you heard about Baraka? And I said, Baraka, what's that? And he went, oh, it's, I don't know, we can watch the first 10 minutes. I mean, it's a very interesting film, apparently. It, it, there's, there's no talking in it. No talking in it? Yeah, it's just, uh, you know, I, I, I've, I've heard good things. And we sat down and we watched that film. And do you know the film? I I'm do talking? know the film, Baraka. Yeah, absolutely. Visual, so we watched sound. Feast. Yeah. That film, I have to say, changed the way I thought about a lot of things fundamentally about life and human beings on this planet. Yeah, and it's got black representation in it without 
you know, just be, by being the film it's, that it well, is. Well, it's more to do with the idea that, like, the the the, the buzz the buzz phrase at that that night when we were watching it was, "This is on this planet now." Yes, we were watching it, thinking, "What's that?" I don't. I don't oh, right. And we were looking at like the pyramids and whatever life in America. I mean, it was in 1992, so again, it it does look like it was filmed in 92. But then that said, it was 70 mil. So it looks amazing and it tells a story without anyone talking, without anyone's attitude or opinion, like on it as an even a narration or something. There's nothing. It just tells you a story with some great, great, great music. Isn't that film more of a key text? You know, every, I mean, it's, as it's all humanity, you know, it should be better known that film. I think, I think it is well known, but it's underground, and I realise that that's where I sit <laughs> in my own in my own in Sean's tiny little world that I am underground. Yeah, mate. Well, I think your tiny little world's about world's about to get a lot bigger after Frank Critchlow in, uh, in Mangrove. <laughs> well, I'm not on any social media, so. I've not seen much. I'm not getting involved because I've never been on social media. No, I'm talking about casting agents. I'm talking about oh. directors. I'm talking about career. I'm talking about this is it for you, man. This is it. I keep thinking that with you know human traffic and then with Moses Jones. But listen, please, God, this is it because uh, yeah, it's a great, great part and you do it beautifully. And I'm so pleased to see that. And thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Uh, it's been a real pleasure see, you. watching you and, and seeing it. And good luck with the, like the, the rest of Small Acts, you know, because yeah. you know. Yeah. Out of those small acts come mighty things. As you say, as you say. A lot of people are calling it little acts at the moment, which I've noticed. But uh, I don't know where they got that from. But no, listen, bless you. They don't um, know they're Bob Marley. It's been, no, that's the, that's, you know what I mean? But uh, no, it's been a journey. It's been a great ride. I thank Steve McQueen and the BBC for putting this together as lovingly as they did. Because quite obviously it was put together lovingly. Uh, I, I, I like to thank everybody involved for for the effort because it really was a crew effort yeah well it feels that way and i'll tell you what if nothing else lots of people are going to go and watch baraka now which uh, i i think i'm going to go and watch baraka again and that is going to do do the do the world the world of good you know what i mean but don't what... watch it on a phone <laughs> don't watch it even on a computer screen I mean, do if you have to with some nice headphones but it's not about looking at it on your phone. It's about watching it on a big screen, having a cognac or whatever your fancy yeah. is by you. I'll tell you what, let's not talking it, through it. Let's do a, when we can get back to real life and do a festival, Sean. Let's do yeah. let's do a festival this summer where we do a big screen and we'll we'll go on to so we'll introduce Baraka and we'll, we'll and we'll change people's lives by watching Baraka together. Jason, I'd love to do that. And I'm not even joking. I'm not exaggerating when I say that, uh, as you've already said, and I'm glad you say it, I'm glad, I'm so glad you've seen it and you know where I'm coming from, that I would do that. Brilliant. I would do that, like a night of films or a night of, as you say, films that changed your life or like that humanity probably should see before we all move on uh, and the other caretakers of this planet. <laughs> are born. absolutely that and small acts together we can do it we can change it uh, Sean Parks lovely to see you mate thanks for joining me on seeing anything good lately lovely thank you Jason
you must catch Mangrove on iPlayer and keep watching all of Small Acts. For me, it's the major movie event of 2020. And of course, it's very 2020 because it's mainly on TV. Okay, that's nearly the end for this week. I must just tell you, my favourite watching moment has been over the last wet weekend. Do you remember when it was really miserable here in London? I just happened to have the telly to myself and was flicking and Easter Parade started up on BBC Two. And from the opening credits, I just had a rictus beam on my face and I was stuck in my sofa. I could not move. My wife joined me and we, we couldn't take our eyes or our ears off it. Fred Astaire and Judy Garland clowning about wonderful dances, New York glamour and the cheesy, witty lyrics that made you laugh and tut. I mean, that Judy song about her farm in Michigan where she wants to wish again that she could fish again and misses the rooster that used to wake her up at 4 a.m. I mean, really, but she delivers it so well that you kind of go with it. And then you've got a couple of swells and the girl I love is on a magazine cover and stepping out with my baby. I'm stepping out with my baby. Can't go wrong because I'm in right. It's for sure, not for maybe that I'm all dressed up tonight. Stepping out with my honey. Can't be bad to feel so good. Never felt quite so sunny and I keep on knocking wood. There'll be smooth sailing because I'm trimming my sails with a bright shine on my shoes and on my nails. These are just proper cinematic movie magic moments and it was just perfect matinee viewing. So well done whoever was curating that afternoon on BBC Two. I know it's not live mixing but you you got the mood just right. It was the perfect choice and making me think that one of these classics should be imbibed I think once a month. They don't want to do it all the time but once a month to see a real classic of that genre is great for the soul. I've got a film noir lined up next. Gun for Hire with Veronica Lake and Alan Ladd and I'm looking forward to that more than anything else right now. I'll let you know how it is in the next Locked Down edition. Thanks to my guests for this week, Sean Parks and James Erskine, and congratulations on their brilliant work, and thanks for all their recommendations. Hope you enjoy them. Hope you catch up with some of them. Let me know. Saggle at jasonsolomons.com and don't forget to subscribe us and rate us. It really helps us to know how we're doing, and it helps other people find us and uh, learn about all these brilliant shows and TV shows and films and recommendations from such brilliant guests hope you enjoyed it see you next time 